You're listening to Episode 7 of Public Ice, sponsored by Home Ice Boston, your home for all things ice. And now, your hosts, Chris Rezendiz and Dave Kleinberg. Welcome, everybody, to Public Ice. On today's episode, we have the team behind a new documentary that's coming out, Life in Synchro. We also have today a tech talk with Aislinn on preventing rust on your blades. So today we'd like to introduce um, the uh, team behind Life in Synchro, a documentary that has, is it, uh, has it just come out? Is it coming out soon? Um, Angela and Nicole, you can let us know, but we have Angela Penaglia and Nicole Davies. How are you guys doing? Good. Hey, good. Thanks for having us. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about yourselves. I'll start with you, Angela. Sure, yeah. So, you know, I am from Miami, Florida. And I always say that because there's really no figure skating in Florida. And um, I moved to Washington, D.C. to go to grad school to get my MFA in film, which is where I met Nicole. And for a couple of years, Nicole would kind of just tell me in passing, yeah, I'm a synchronized skater. And, you know... I hate to admit this, but I just really, it didn't register. I just didn't care. So, um, but she finally got me to go to an exhibition game and, uh, sorry, uh, you know, an exhibition. And when I saw the skating, I'm like, man, Nicole, this is really cool. Why didn't you tell me? She's like, I've been trying to tell you. And I, you know, and, and I, and I got to thinking, I'm like, man, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Does a documentary already exist? And it didn't. And I was looking to start a new project, and that is how I discovered synchronized skating three years ago, thanks to Nicole. Excellent. And Nicole, um, I guess you know a little bit about skating. (laughs) A little bit. You could say that. Uh, I have been on skates since my dad built a rink in the backyard on a tarp when I was two years old, which was possible growing up in New England. It got cold enough, um, as you guys know. Um, so I, I grew up skating in Massachusetts. I skated synchronized skating, which actually my first year was the first year that it was called synchronized skating instead of precision back in 2000. Um, I skated for the colonials out of Acton mass, um, their juvenile through junior line represented team USA when I was in high school. Um, after I graduated, I moved to DC, uh, like Angela said, we met at American university after I graduated college, I actually moved to Michigan to skate for the Crystalette Senior. I uh, went to Sweden for Worlds in 2012 um, and then moved back to D.C. Thought I was done with skating, as I'm sure many skaters can relate to, um, but I wasn't. So I got involved in coaching um, and skating adult for D.C. Edge. So um, that was the exhibition I brought Angela to was the D.C. Edge show and uh, the rest is history. And so the name of the documentary, now I'm going to call it movies sometimes. Is there a difference between if I call it a movie or do you have to say documentary when talking about a documentary? It's a movie. I hope it's, you know, like I want you to enjoy it like a movie. It's totally interchangeable. Or as, you know, my grandmother used to call it, what was it, talking stories? Is that? (laughs) Talkies? That's that's really old school, but we can, yeah, it's definitely a talkie. (laughs) So um, the name of the talkie is Life in Synchro. And so I guess what inspired you to make the documentary? Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, it probably took me two years to really understand what initially piqued my interest because I don't think that I could put it into words right away. You know, part of it, of course, is, you know, when you first see Synchro and you're like in an actual rank, it sounds amazing, right? All those blades on the ice. You feel the wall of wind moving, you know, past you when there's, you know, a group, a, a team skating by. And it was just such a, in, you know, almost like an f- immersive experience. And I'm like, well, what? And obviously you see there's a lot of women. Of course, there's some young men and, and adult men who are involved in the sport. But it's the, the, you know, there's a women empowerment angle that, again, I didn't see it at first. Um and so that's what started the process. And of course, what kept me, you know, going was as I learned more about it, you know, you learn about the history of the sport, which there's not really a lot of information out there about that. And when I learned that it was just this one man, a father 
who saw the need for team sports back in 1956 for his own daughters. That hooked me even more. And then, of course, as I met more and more skaters and coaches and learned more, it just like I kept going deeper and deeper into the hole. So um, by the end of it, you know, the movie Life in Synchro, I don't think it's what I thought I was going to make at the beginning because, you know, what I had seen was a lot of young people on the ice. But as you watch the movie, it's not just young people on the ice. And I think that's one of the great things about synchronized skating is that you can stay engaged in the sport well into adulthood and still have tons of fun. Awesome. Yeah, that, that was great. Now, one question I asked for you, um, Angela, is is how did you find the, uh, the original team? You know, uh, so Nicole was, re- you know, as a producer, really hooked me up to uh, a lot of people. And and it really be there was obviously we reached out to a lot of a lot of teams. But the ones we ended up featuring were the ones that, you know, just were more open, more available to us. Obviously, proximity played a role, too. Um, so we actually, you know, we, we filmed uh, some Delo- University of Delaware and Delaware synchro teams. Uh, we filmed DC Edge and, you know, and as you start collecting all these stories, you still got to edit it. Right. So it's got to make it through to the editing room. So not everybody that we filmed actually made it in the final final film. Yeah. So I was I was wondering, um, it actually is a probably goes right into this uh, statement. Um, and we're known for asking tough questions. So this is the tough question. Uh, did you have trouble finding participants for the documentary? Um. Uh, yeah, I'm going to kick that to Nicole. I think Nicole likes sure, to yeah, that yeah. one. So I think building off what Angela just said about how we kind of went about finding people in the first place, um, you know, originally we contacted all of the top Team USA teams in the country. Um, and some of them, for Crystalettes, for example, like I have a personal relationship with them since I skated there. So it's a lot easier to get in touch with them than maybe some of the other coaches. But we did reach out to all of the coaches and different organizations have different rules about um, and everything from social media to when their skaters get interviewed, what that process looks like for them. Um, so some organizations were like, this is a great idea. We need to take it to the board and ask, or this is a great idea. We need to take it to you know, this such and such a person ask. Um, and like Angela said, we filmed a lot more teams than actually made it into the documentary. So I think for the most part, teams were very welcoming um, and really wanted to help because people really want to get the word out about the sport because everybody who's in it knows that it's really special. Um, and they really want to be able to show that to the rest of the world that isn't living in what we call the synchro bubble. So I would say for the most part, it was pretty easy to find participants. I think as people who are in the synchro world know, it is it is difficult, especially during competition time. Um, and not just for synchro, I think for any athlete trying to get access when the skaters are in their most intense competition mode can be a little nerve wracking. Um, but I think Angela did a really good job of once we did start filming these teams, building personal relationships with all of the subjects. Um, and so there was a lot of trust going on there and Angela knew when to step back and when it was a good moment. And I think for the most part, it worked really well and flowed really well. So, um, that's a long way to answer the question, but I think we didn't really have trouble finding participants. I think everybody was eager to help. Um, and we ended up having more content than we could even put all in this one story. And I'm just going to continue on this train of thought. Um, because, you know, from what I've seen over the years, um, especially different teams have different uh, rules uh, as, a, as part of, you know, practice interruptions because ice time is limited and expensive. So just ha- I'm sure there was interruption to the teams itself. Um, so I, I think this is one of one of the uh, questions I have is like, was there an interruption uh, and how did you mitigate that for the teams? Well, I can start and Angela, feel free to jump in. Um, But I'm thinking specifically, you know, we went to some different boot camps. We went to some different practices and different competitions. Um, The coaches were really great about being fine with being mic'd up for the whole practice. And we did our best to stay out of their way so that they could run practice the way that they always do. Um, So it's definitely difficult. And this is, I think where Angela can speak even more about it, getting the right camera angles. Um, so we spent a lot of time actually at the boards, not on the ice. Um, 
and then some other times where we put the camera on a skater. Um, but we really worked to minimize those disruptions as much as we could. Yeah, we actually, we did not really direct on the ice. You know, like I would have loved to have been on the ice and had a team skating around me, but because ice time is so precious, that just, that didn't happen. And so, um, in fact, you'll see it in the movie, the scenes you do see, it's like someone's got the camera on them and it's a skater from the team. Um, yeah, we were really cognizant of that. And, um, I lost my train of thought. I'll leave it at that. Now, Nicole, what actually got you? Uh, what what actually got you interested in synchro initially? It's an excellent question. Um, my father saw the Colonial Junior Team perform at our Ice Crystals show, um, and I was in the show because I was in the Basic Skills program, and something in that performance really resonated with him, like struck him. Um, and he was like, I really want my daughter to do this. I think partially it was the unison, the synchronicity, the teamwork. Um, but he just really liked what he saw and thought it would be a good activity structure and, um, a lot of learning life lessons, not just skating skills. Um, and back then I think I, found out practices were on Wednesdays and I had Girl Scouts on Wednesdays. So I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> um, and actually the first year that I tried out, I didn't make the team, but I continued with basic skills and, um, the director of basic skills, Nancy Schricker, um, encouraged me to try out again the next year. And that's when I made the juvenile team. And from there, it just grew into my passion. So, um, I think came from, the people around me first, maybe my dad and my other coaches. I already loved being on the ice, so it made sense. Um, but it soon became my favorite part of skating. And if I could have cut, <laughs> if I could have cut my moves in freestyle and dance and only do synchro, I would have loved to do that. But as you know, you need to be well-rounded in all those disciplines. So I had to carry on with those as well. And what you said about not making the team—it's kind of I heard something related to what you were saying in in the uh, movie. Um, around not knowing, I think it was the, the two sisters, one of them didn't really know about synchro, and I've heard the term uh, synchro sense. So I was wondering if that was what you didn't have that first year, where you based, you had the skating skills, but you probably didn't have the synchro sense. Is that kind of one of the <laughs> Um I wish. I probably didn't have the skating skills either, but um, no, I do think, and definitely speaking as a coach now, I think I have even more perspective on that than I once did the synchro sense is really important. It's not enough just to be able to do the right step sequence or the right field move, but having an awareness of all the people around you is really important because you can be doing all the right steps. You could be doing them all at the right time with the music, but if you're out of line, you're taking away from the team's performance. And, and it's true. Not, not every person, not every skater has that skill, at least not naturally it takes some time to learn, but I know I have worked with a few freestyle skaters over the years that joined synchro a little bit later in their skating career. Um, and it did take them a little while to adjust to it. Um, but they have ended up being very successful synchronized skaters, even though the, the lag time and kind of picking up those skills took a little bit longer into the season or maybe even, maybe even a year or two before they felt really integrated, but it was possible. So it can be learned, but, um, it, yeah, it can be difficult. And there are some of those hand signals, right? Like squeezing the arm or doing this and that to, to let people know what to do. I've heard, you know, granted, I, I have no idea, but I've, I've heard, heard this <laughs> from the skaters that they have certain signals. I would say wearing my coach hat, I would say I don't want my skaters squeezing arms or doing any kind of peer coaching in the middle of the program. Um, but wearing my skater hat, I can say, for yeah, for sure, because maybe the person to the left of you can tell that you're out of line more easily than you can because they've got more of a view and they can, you know, pull your shoulder back or, you know, skate faster and, and bring you with them. So there's, there's definitely a lot of that working together, hopefully not in a pure coaching sense, but um, in a true teamwork sense. Now, Angela, what's, what's something now doing this documentary, what's something that you learned about synchro that, that you, uh, you didn't know before and it was profound. 
That's a tough question. A profound truth. You know, obviously I learned a lot. Uh, I think what Emily says at the end of the movie, where she can do anything, and, uh, you know, it's because she's been coached by women, you know, she's been with other women, skated with women. This, if, you know, I think with synchronized skating, what you see is what a feel, female-dominated space can look like and what it can do for young girls. Um, you know, building self-confidence is, you know, you hear that all the time, but, like, literally everyone I met in the synchro world was super self-confident, and you don't always see that with young, young women or adult women. And that really left me thinking, like, man, if I ever have kids, especially daughters, I'm going to put them into synchro, you know, because it's having that that space and that environment that will really nurture you and allow you to grow and, you know, basically be yourself. And then on the flip side of that, you know, there's Heidi Coffin, who is our, at the time of the movie, she was 65, but she just turned 68 last week. You know, she's still skating. And, you know, here is a woman, you don't usually see people well into their 60s doing something that's so physically demanding because, you know, synchro is, can be dangerous. Um, and she's just out there, like, living her best life. And I'm like, she's living with such passion. And for me, it really just encouraged me to, like, whatever it is you want to do in life, do it to the max. And, and so I feel like, honestly, in making the movie, I learned a lot about the sport, but I feel like more than anything, I got the gift here and just in personal growth, you know, like it's just really expanded my mind and I want to, I'm not trying to rush to my sixties or anything, but when I get to be 68, I hope I'm just as active as Heidi. Now, Heidi is from Maine, correct? That's correct. And Trina, my wife is from Maine as well. So yeah. I think it's something about Maine folk. They definitely, they definitely go strong and, and uh, are able to do things without uh, fear. Right. <laughs> so I guess, Angela, what is your favorite part of the sport? I know I heard you mention something that I always saw when, when I watched Synchro, and it's the wind, the Synchro wind. Chris, I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever felt this, um, but when I, you don't necessarily see it outside of maybe the junior or the senior levels. But when they go by you, it's like a you know a, a leaf blower um, at you know raking leaves. The amount of wind, and then you get the smell of the ice. It's just a, a unique feeling. I don't know if that's one of your favorite pieces as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you know, so going back to one of your earlier questions about you know ice time, and there was uh, I was able to hang out with the Hot Cats Junior team for about thirty minutes on the ice, and they did whatever I asked them to do. And they uh, did a circle. I was inside of a circle, and they were all just kind of like spinning around me in a circle. And man, it's actually really hard to film, and that's part of the reason it's not in the movie. They're moving so fast, the camera couldn't keep up with it, the frame rate. Uh, they were just like blurs. But um, I think one of the other things I love that sometimes it's hard to get across on TV or video for the sport is, you know, you need to see the big picture, right? You need to see the, all the shapes and the formations. But you also want to be close enough that you could see the facial expressions and, you know, the skaters are definitely emoting a lot of feeling and, uh, to be able to do both, right. You want to be close enough that you could see that, but far enough that you can, you know, see the big picture. And so that was a challenge for us in the movie. Um, we try, you know, we got better at it as the more we filmed it, the better we got. And so by the time we filmed, uh, last year's nationals, we were pros. Um, but unfortunately we weren't, we didn't need that to cover that as much for the movie. Um, but I think that's one of the challenges moving forward for the sport, right? Is how do you how do you do both? Great answer. Uh, that's very interesting. Now, Nicole, this I have a question for you. Um, I'm going to ask you to put your co your coaching hat back on. Is okay. now what do you what do you look for in a, a synchro skater when you're choosing a team? Um, well, I think I mentioned earlier, but it's really important for synchronized skaters to be well rounded. Um, skaters need to be strong and powerful, but they also need to be flexible. Um, they need to be good at freestyle, their moves and ice dance. I personally look for knee and ankle bend in my skaters. Um, it's also really important to be able to count a beat, which maybe sounds funny, but I've encountered some skaters before who just cannot hear a beat and it's, it's really challenging. Um, 
So having that kind of musicality um, and connection with the music is important. Um, And then there are, of course, the interpersonal things as well, like needing to work well with others and adapt quickly, be able to see the bigger picture. Um, Also, back to what we were talking about with the self-awareness and the synchro sense, that's really important to have as well. Um, You know, you want somebody who's going to be a good teammate because this is a team sport in every sense of the word. Um, There are no all-stars. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, and that means on and off the ice. So I think attitude is really important. Um, so there are definitely a lot of things that you look for. I think it also depends on the year and what the current IJS rules are if you're, you know, trying out for an IJS team. Um, but there are certain requirements in the program. And if the skater can't physically do one of the skills, you know, they can't, you can't put them on the ice. So there are many layers there. Um, and, you know, rostering is always hard because you also have to balance age requirements for each level. Um, and sometimes building multiple teams within an organization, trying to figure out where everybody fits so that everybody has a home can be a difficult task. But, um, you know, overall being well-rounded, strong skills on and off the ice and a positive attitude. <laughs> So, Nicole, um, kind of going on that, in similar in that train of thought, uh, so how are we going to see teams continuing to advance the sport? Uh, and what I mean by that is we usually see the overseas teams pushing boundaries. Uh, and so how are we going to push them through the levels and making the teams besides the junior and senior teams stand out um, when all the teams have the same element requirements but a short time in their routine? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, thinking about the question of what makes a good coach in comparison to what makes a good skater, coaches need to have an ability to fulfill those technical requirements while also maintaining creativity. And I know, um, you know, the ISU has made a very specific effort to try and bring some creativity back. I think we kind of when we switched from 6.0 to IJS, we got a little bit maybe robotic in the elements that are required and how much time we have to do them. But the past few years, those requirements have changed. Um, and there are elements such as the creative element um, and opportunities in the program that are built into the technical requirements to leave some room for that. So I think it's having a coach who can come up with that creativity to be able to implement those things within the confines of the rules. Um, But then there's another side to it as well. That's the actual program. What kind of music are you using? What kind of dresses are the skaters wearing? How are you portraying the character? So building those layers, um, there is definitely plenty of room for creativity. I think it's important that the coaches don't get wrapped up in the technical requirements, even though they are obviously required. Um, but bringing that creativity in wherever you can is definitely really important. Now, I'm just going to continue one track now. I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that the, the difficulty of the music factors into the creativity. So if the music is a straight 4-4 four, four beat, going back to where you're talking beats, it's easier than if the tempo is changing or the um, the type of music is changing or, in general, the music is changing. Is that is that true? Yes, that's 100% correct. I have definitely cut music together for a theme that I loved and then realized it was switching from, you know, an eight count to a six count. And that was going to be really challenging for the age group or the skill level of the skaters that I wanted to use it with um, and went back and recut music with different songs for that very reason. Yep. So percent so, Chris, one of the things, you know, in hockey, you you know, the winner is whoever has the most goals, right? You know, um, but one of the things in synchronized skating is you're there all day at a tournament as a parent. So all the parents do is talk about um, the different theories that we all have, um, such as this question that I asked about the music. So it it uh, never, never ends all the different uh, theories that we all have. But I think you've, uh, Nicole, definitely provided some insight into the music. Now, what, one question I have, Angela, actually in making the movie, and one of the things I really liked about it is is the two sisters uh, that were coaches uh, that were talking about the routines and, and they were kind of playing off of each other. Um, 
this kind of goes to you as well, Nicole, is, is how often do you change the routines? Is, is it based off a of time? And this is this is coming from someone that doesn't understand the sport as well as I should. Uh, but do you do you change the routines a lot? Do you choreograph them uh, and so forth? <laughs> uh, well, the goal is to not have to change it, but um, that really never works as planned. Um, I think each coach is different and each organization is different in the way that they choreograph their programs. Um, personally, we use what we call count sheets or step sheets, and they're literally Excel documents, and there's a, a cell for each beat of the music. Um, so building that in advance of being with the team and trying it on ice, it's not going to work 100% the way that you planned because you don't know necessarily how much ice they're going to cover with eight counts of the music and crossovers until you're actually doing it on the ice. So, you know, we, we create the step sheet, we create the flow of the elements from one to the next. Um, but there's a lot of tinkering with it, especially at the beginning, once you get into the season, um, it's obviously more difficult to make changes because you have kind of the foundation set and rearranging the order of elements or rearranging people's spots um, can mean re-choreographing entire chunks of the program. And there's not always time to do that. In between competitions, you maybe only have a week or two. So we do try and minimize the number of changes that we make. Um, but I will say, and I've said this to my skaters too, sometimes they get frustrated when we're making changes, but we wouldn't be making changes if we didn't think we could make it better. So it might be frustrating to work through those changes, but what's going to happen is in the end, it's going to be stronger. So either we're changing something because we see something new that we didn't see before. We're changing it because maybe the skaters actually got more powerful and faster because they're more confident with the steps and the program. So they're filling out the ice more and they need more room to do whatever it is that they're doing, which means we need to, rearrange things right or it could be we got feedback from a judge or a critique you know a tech panel on um you know something that they thought we could do better or something that was going to be hard to get called doing it the way that we were because they can't see exactly what they need to see so there are a lot of reasons for making changes um but like i tell my skaters it's it's for the best it's going to make the program better and stronger even if it feels frustrating to make that change now, it's going to be better in the long run. And the interesting thing is, um, I, you know, I have seen the same teams, you know, over the course of the year, over all the different competitions, and they all change. Um, you know, just when you think they're going to do one thing, you know, they're all doing a different type of spiral or a different type of uh, block. And it's, it's very... And those are those are terms for for the audience. Um, but they they're always doing something different every competition up until the uh, sectionals or you know the 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 later tournaments. And it's it's very interesting to watch. And I, I guess they talked as you said talk to the judges or tech uh, panel to understand how to how to improve. Yeah, I thought you did a great job uh, capturing that, Angela. Actually, in the in the, in the... The movie. I just want to mention that again because it was something that that you know you don't you don't always see the coaches doing all the work on the sidelines. Uh, and it was interesting that the two sisters and the banter that you kind of caught back and forth. So yeah, yeah, you know you you know this is what the challenge of making this movie is is that you have to s introduce people to synchronized skating. Any other sports documentary, people know what basketball it is. You know they already know something, but. For us, it was like, what do I have to show you? What do I have to tell the audience technically so they have a base understanding? And then we can kind of forget about the rules and really go on the journey of these individuals, you know, because I had an earlier cut of the movie where we got more specific, like in the opening scene or montage, um, Coach John from the Down Easters, he has like this uh, cookie sheet with magnets that he uses to like, you know, work on the routines. And I had him do, a, you know, basically explain to me what the different shapes are that these skaters are making. And I had this really great stop motion sequence that honestly was the most expensive 30 seconds of the movie to make because it was it took a lot to make it. And it didn't make it into the final cut because what I found is the more I laid down the rules and the technicalities of the sport, People wanted to know more and more and more. And man, synchro is very hard to fully explain. Like I got a broad understanding, but with all the different levels, you know, all the different with the, you know, the scoring system, I don't fully understand it. Right. So it was a fine line of what do you, what do we got to introduce? 
and then just let the the characters tell the rest of their story. Awesome. Well, I was going to say, I think you did a great job of that, especially with someone like my child obviously plays hockey and, and I wasn't too familiar with Synchro. Um, and you did a really good job of kind of explaining the sport to me. So uh, just great job in that aspect. Uh, Thank you. Now, one thing I was going to say is, is and I, I noticed you kind of followed one coach and, and so forth. Um, how cool was it to actually get in with the, the history and, and the original team? Oh, you know, I have to say it was almost one of my favorite parts because it was like we're doing our own discovery. It's our own adventure. And um, because there wasn't a lot, you know, it was already that's already out there. It was uh, just like cold calling people like the way I was even able to meet uh, Dr. Porter's daughter, Susan Turner, was by writing like an old fashioned letter. All I had was an address and I didn't know if she was going to write back to me. And luckily she did. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of years have passed and there wasn't there's not a lot from the 50s in terms of photographs, I was always hoping that I would have found, you know, some old eight millimeter film because, you know, synchro started, you know, before it was called synchro was precision. And the reason the hot are called the hot is that they would uh, perform during, uh, you know, the breaks or before hockey games at the university of Michigan. So I always thought surely, you know, somebody filmed one of those games and they happened to catch the Hawkeyes and I have yet to find it. I'm still on the hunt for it. Um, but you know, it, it was awesome. And so I went with Peggy and then Edie Patterson, another original Hawkeye. And we kind of drove around Ann Arbor and, you know, they just did some recollecting of the past. And, and with Peggy's story, to me, it's so amazing that somebody who was there at the beginning in 1956 went on to make it her career where there really wasn't like a career path for like precision coaching. Right. And so she created, you know, she created the Fraserettes at the Fraser figure skating club and then went on to coach the first national champions in 1984. And then to still be involved, you know, in the sport and still connected to her skaters, like, you know, 40 years later. So uh, yeah, it was tons of fun. So it's really interesting that all these teams are using the suffix, I would say, ets in their name based off the, off of Dr. Porter's hockets. And I wonder if, if half of the teams even know where where the names come from. Yeah, I think uh, there's a big disconnect, again, between you know the history and the foundation just because that information hasn't been out there. And so one of the things Nicole and I would definitely like to do is get this movie to all the figure skating clubs, right? Like here, learn a little bit about your history. We've also collected a lot more history that couldn't make it into the film. And so we're working on developing a sort of screening and educational guide that goes more into the sport, but also generally into, you know, sports issues because that ending of Eds is not just in synchro, you know, there's other female teams that have had that and other, you know, other sports. And um, it's definitely something that now moving, you know, with gender equality, we're moving away from those ads, but, and I don't think we have to totally lose it, but it's good to know, yeah, what it's based on. And it is interesting because synchro is not a, um, female sport. It is, you know, it is, a, uh, I would say is co-ed, you know, that it, it has men and boys as well on the teams. It does. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I really also love about synchro is what it can be, what it could become. Because I think one of the challenges right now is when you do have a young man on a team, you know, when someone doesn't look like the other 15 people on the team, your eye immediately goes to that person, right? Uh, and it's just like, you know, it's like human nature. We focus on the one thing that looks different. But in keeping with that difference, imagine if it really was a truly equal team where it's half men, half women, people of all shapes, colors, and sizes. When you have this true kind of diversity, then there's not one person you're focused on and you can really enjoy the whole, right? Like just 16 different people on the ice. And so to me, that's what Synchro can become. And I'd love to see it get there. Now, this question's for Nicole. Um, you know I'm going to bring it back to hockey just because that's, that's, that's where I play. Uh, now, you, when did you start hockey? I didn't start hockey until... I think my sophomore or junior year of high school. Interesting. So now what, what got you into hockey at that point? My friends were playing and um, I was also a field hockey player and it seemed like a great combination of my two favorite sports, which it was, it was, it was incredibly fun. It's like fast paced field hockey, 
gliding on ice. You can't ask for a better, a better combination. <laughs> That's awesome. That's actually what got my son in, involved in hockey is my wife was a field hockey player. So um, she absolutely loved that and that kind of transition. So interesting. Yeah. Now for me, it was the opposite. So my daughter started playing hockey, um, but I always joke when she was eight, she was doing spirals while she was supposed to be getting the puck. So we kind of switched it up to uh, where she probably is more happy. <laughs> so now, now, Nicole, I always have to ask coaches this, and, and uh, this is a little tougher question, but what was the transition point where you went from uh, skater to, but you, you're actually still skating though, correct? In the adult? Um, I did not compete this past season, but I plan to return soon. So I would say I'm in between being an active competitive skater. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, this is going to be a unique question for you then is because you haven't truly made the transition from uh, player to coach. So, uh, but which do you prefer better skating or, or coaching? They're so different. It's impossible to choose one. Um, there is nothing like the feeling of competing. Um, and I, and I miss that. And I have to say, even, even skating at the adult level, I still miss the feeling of competing at the senior level, just the speed and the intensity and the power is that much greater. Um, so I, I do still miss that. Um, but there's also for me, the component of coaching that I like the best, that's the most important to me is the connections that I make with my skaters. Um, and, you know, teaching them the lessons that I learned through skating and being there for them as hopefully, you know, a leader and a role model. Um, I wouldn't trade that for the world. So I can't choose, which is why I really haven't, I really haven't chosen still trying to do both. I'll probably be trying to do both for as long as I can. And one of the things you guys showed in the movie, which I actually thought it was great, was the um, off-ice that the teams were working on. And uh, this year, uh, Warwick hosted the Nationals for Synchro uh, up in Providence. And the um, I was actually, you know, helping out and doing and working a lot. Um, but I was able to see a lot of the senior teams, they were doing off-ice down in the in – the, um, uh, corridor underneath the stadium running at full speed doing splits against the wall you know it was and but they were in, you know all of them were in, in unison and it was just amazing to see and i was telling you know my daughter's coach we should just bring the kids down to watch the motivation level and and how hard these senior teams are working um before they get out there and it's just great to see. I don't, do you do that with your, um, you said you coach an intermediate team. Do you have them watch uh, some of the higher level teams? Yeah, I would say that's one of the things that I love about the DC edge organization is we do have a wide range of skills and levels all the way from, you know, synchro skills through junior team USA and adult and masters. So there's definitely a lot of that going on where the, where the, junior level skaters are serving as role models for the, the preliminary skaters and the pre-juvenile skaters. And they do get to see them. Um, we do a lot of, you know, combined exhibition events so that all the teams are there together. Um, but exactly what you said, it is important just to see the teams at office and see what they're doing for their conditioning or what they're doing for their heads and arms drills. Um, so yes, we absolutely incorporate that. Definitely having the younger skaters watch the intensity, like you said, and the focus and the unison of the older teams to give them a sense of what they're, what they're striving for. And I think it also works the other way around. Sometimes we'll have the older teams watch the younger teams so that they feel, you know, inspired to perform their very best for, for the people that they want to impress. Now that's, that's, that's great. Great point, Nicole. And that's, that's awesome to hear. Now, one question I have for you, um, and this is going to be more a little, a little bit more geared towards um, the future, because um, we all know it's a little bit uh, undecided, or there's still a lot of questions in the air. Uh, how do you think COVID, this this whole COVID nineteen thing, is going to actually affect uh, synchro skating in the years to come? I think it's really hard to say right now, like it is for really everything in society. I think in the short term and even the medium term, it's going to have a huge impact. Um, I'm sure you know this because of, of your daughter, but, you know, teams aren't practicing right now. The rinks aren't open. Um, I know a lot of organizations are doing virtual 
virtual team sessions for conditioning or mental training or um, team building activities um, until they can get back to the rink. But it's going to be a long road back to what we consider normal, um, which I think is very upsetting, especially for maybe the rising seniors um, who were hoping to have their last season with their team. And it's not going to look anything like what they would have expected. Um, so I do not know the details of how it's all going to work out. I know us figure skating is working on things on their end for how things are going to function logistically. Um, and I know coaches and teams are going to have some tough decisions to make on their own, I believe, but hopefully no matter what happens, whether we're able to have competitions, whether we're able to have competitions that look anything like we're used to this season, um, you know, hopefully we can keep the skaters motivated. We can keep the sense of community really strong so that no matter what happens the next year, you know, once we do have a vaccine, once we can kind of go back to some sense of normal, we're still going to have really strong, passionate, excited athletes who are ready to train and compete again. Now, do you think they're going to change anything into the sport um, just because of the, the close connections? Uh, like in, for example, in hockey, they're contemplating um, wearing the the, the fi- half shields or the gla- fish bowls, as we always like to call them. Uh, do you think there's any changes coming to the sport like that? I, you know, I don't know. This is a question probably for U.S. figure skating or the ISU. Um, I, my guess would be that it's going to be up to the teams and the organizations themselves, how they want to handle those kinds of details. Um, again, I could be wrong and there could be something mandated from a higher level. Um, but I don't know. It's a good question. Well, well, if it does help, Chris and I found a dressmaker, a costume maker, um, that makes uh, face masks out of the same material as the dresses. Um, so they, they can have matching, matching masks. They can have matching masks, but they were only $300 a piece. Oh, yeah, that's no problem. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll add that to the to the uh, to the intuition. Um, but, yeah, it's I can't see people wearing it. I mean, we we talked to um, a number of uh, skaters and it, you know, the big the big uh, thing is that for a professional athlete, any type of covering on your mouth would will impact you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm imagining something more like temperature checks. Um, or being a lot more strict about when people aren't feeling well. But obviously, as you all know, the challenge with COVID is that you can be asymptomatic. So hopefully testing becomes more readily available and we'll have more information and knowledge. And hopefully that will come soon, you know, in the next few weeks or months. Um, And it may not. And I think we're just going to have to make decisions based on the information that we have and do what's best for everybody. And I think this is kind of a representation, a small representation of the challenges that we're facing as a larger society, because there are a lot of people, a lot of coaches um, who this is their livelihood and having a season is how they're going to, you know, survive. Um, but it's also important to take into consideration the health of all of the athletes and the coaches and their family members and their community members um, and, to not be putting anybody at risk when it's too soon and we don't have enough information. So like I said, it's going to be a lot of tough decisions up and down the board. So I know it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Definitely. Um, So one of the themes of the movie uh, was uh, around being an Olympic sport. Um, And I guess one of the questions that I have is that the amount of, from what it seems and from what I've um, read, is the amount of junior and senior teams in the U.S. has decreased uh, over the years. So how do we get more teams uh, to the level where they can be Team USA uh, contenders? And, um, you know, I guess it's difficult for a lot of these organizations just to make the teams just because there's not as many skaters. Well, hopefully our documentary will help raise awareness of the sport Uh, and, you know, getting more skaters in at the lower levels is the first place to start because you need a feeder system uh, from the ground up. I think 
you know, the number of senior teams may be lower now than it was 10 years ago, but the level of competition, the skill level is a lot higher. Um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of working towards the Olympics, because I think having that strength is more important than having the volume. That's not to say that we don't still need the volume at the lower levels speeding up to the higher levels. Um, but I think, like I said, hopefully this documentary will help raise awareness. Angela mentioned earlier, trying to get this into the hands of all the figure skating clubs, even the ones that don't, especially the ones that don't have synchro so that they can see what value it can provide for their skaters and their, you know, their club. Um, it's a big time commitment. It's a big financial commitment. So I think if organizations, you know, starting with us figure skating, which I know they are working on, um, a fund that's synchronized skating specific, but, being able to get more people involved in the sport that don't necessarily have the financial means um, because that is a barrier to entry. So I think there are a lot of things that we can do as a community to make this sport more inclusive, um, which will increase the number of skaters, which will hopefully increase the skill level, which will hopefully help us towards Olympic inclusion. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's, that's definitely key. Um, especially with uh, like hockey has done such a great, well, I shouldn't say have done, has done such a great job with that, but uh, you look at Canada and, and they've made it cost effective for just about everyone to play um, or in Minnesota where it's, it's cost effective like that myself as well. Now, is there any programs out there that is currently working on, um, on bringing like synchro skating to inner cities and so forth that you know of currently? There's um, figure skating in Harlem and figure skating in Detroit. Um, and I know figure skating Figure skating in Harlem does have synchro teams. Um, I know in our in the local area here in DC, um, Fort DuPont has synchro teams, and they have a really great program over there. So yeah, th there are definitely some, but um, certainly not enough. And so, um, in terms of uh, the teams, now I know uh, you're from uh, DC Edge, so you do have a, a lot of teams on your area and I always notice you always have the different colors of those just in case you have, uh, you know, like a uh, one intermediate red and one intermediate blue, are they from different uh, skating clubs? Uh, we all represent the same skating club, Washington figure skating club. Um, like I said, we, we do our best to give every skater a home and a team and a place to skate. Um, so sometimes that means having to, lines in the same division. We've never had two intermediate teams though. We, we have had two OJ, two PJ, two prelim teams in the past. And that's great because that just means that you're getting a lot of skaters, which is awesome. Yes. Yep. Now, Angela, this, this question is more for you. Um, let's get you back into the movie aspect. So what got you into film? You know, it was just a dream I always had growing up, but it took me a while to get to it. Uh, so, you know, I went to college at the University of Florida, and I majored in the most useful thing one can major in, English. Um, and I ended up going into education, and I had a, a business with my sister. I had a preschool and a private school down in Florida. But, you know, it wasn't my dream. You know, I wanted to get into film. So, and I can't even tell you what it was. It was just something inside me, which is why I moved to D.C. and and uh, studied at American University. And that was, wow, nine years ago that I moved to DC. So I've been doing this for a while now. Um, and I, you know, I always joke that I really think I'm the least likely person to have done this documentary, but I am so grateful for having done it because, you know, I started naively saying, yeah, I'm just going to do a documentary about synchronized skating, <laughs> which is like, when you really think about it, what does that look like? Um, it was a really big project that I, and I convinced Nicole to support me early on. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's where I am now. And so I do this. I also do, uh, you know, I'm like a freelance producer and cinematographer here in, in the city. And, uh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Now what's your, are you planning any other projects or, a, or a, um, a, sec a sequel to this this project? <laughs> oh, there's you know I can't wait for it to get into the Olympics because that will be the movie continued, and I really hope that like 
you know, Peggy and Heidi and everybody else will still be in our sequel and life will be totally different. But I'm also working on, um, sorry to work on a new documentary, but unfortunately, you know, with COVID that's kind of paused that. So I've switched over to fiction. You know, I also do, uh, produce short films. And so I'm working on a script. Um, but yeah, I've actually, you know, COVID, has really stopped in some ways, like the flow that we had going, the momentum with the documentary, but with this film festival Alliance and this film festival day, that's, you know, coming up this Saturday, it's really put us on a much, you know, we're able to reach a much larger national audience simultaneously. So it's been kind of a really lucky silver lining. And so we're just really busy promoting it, uh, pushing it a lot and uh, just excited to get it out there. So how can people um, see the movie this weekend? Or yeah, like tell us what they need to do. Sure. So go to filmfestivalday.com. You can buy your ticket there. Uh, the movie will become available on Friday, the 22nd. But the official day is Saturday, May 23rd. And that's when everyone's encouraged to watch the, the film that same day. We're going to have a Q&A that starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. So we suggest you start watching the movie at 6, and then at 7 p.m. Uh, you could switch over to our Zoom. Once you buy the ticket, they will email you all the Zoom information. And if you can't do it on Saturday, it's all right. The movie is going to be available until the 31st of May. So uh, so you could, uh, you could refer a friend, tell somebody. We're just trying to spread the word because one of the great things, too, is that we're getting the analytics and data on who's watching the movie. And if we can show a distributor, look at how many people, like, watch, our, you know, watch Synchro on Saturday, you know, for the event. Like, we can reach a much larger audience. The interest is there. And, of course, for the movie and also for the sport because, you know, ultimately that's what this is about is to increase awareness about synchro to propel it to a more international stage and to get it into the Olympics. So, so I'll go now, I guess a couple questions. So are there, is there a way for what do they enter their team? If, if kids are on a specific team when they're signing in to watch the movie or it's really, um, you're, you're still just collecting the analytics, but it's not really at a team level. It's not at a team level here. So what we're getting is more like regional information in terms of where people are located. And the other great connection and the other wonderful thing about this event is that it's also supporting local film festivals and independent theaters. Uh, proceeds are split between us and them. So um, it's also a way for us to create, uh, you know, partnerships locally. So we hope that, you know, when COVID passes, we can still go back to these communities. We can have actual in-person screenings since we already have the proof that there's an interest in those communities. Excellent. And uh, when will Synchro be an Olympic sport? So I don't want to give it a well. <laughs> Synchro will be an Olympic sport, right? <laughs> one day. I'm going to let Nicole answer this one. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the documentary yet, uh, synchronized skating was not accepted for the 2022 Olympics. Um, but, you know, we're still hopeful for the future. Um, Synchro has been doing all the right things building the skill, building teams around the world. Um, it's gone through a lot of the steps in order to get there, getting approval from the ISU, getting approval from the IOC. Um, the most important thing at this point, I think, is getting a host city on board that is interested in synchronized skating, which may mean that they need to have a strong team from their country in order to want to include it in the games that they're hosting. And so, so where's 2026? It's a good question. I should know that. That's going to be asked tomorrow or on Friday or Saturday. When... <laughs> is that... Milan. Is that... this is Milan. <laughs> it's a test run. Wow. You guys are tough. <laughs> we try so to be. There, is, there is a uh, international synchro competition in Milan. So the country should be, the city should be familiar with the sport, which hopefully will work in our favor. And what was interesting is, um, I'm sure, Nicole, you were at Eastern's or in Albany? I actually was not. Year? Ah, okay. Well, they actually um, announced how much money the, the competition made for the city. It was, you know, they, I think they said something over $3 million um, for, you know, a, a small, you know, quote unquote, small sport, but it was more than other events, you know, much bigger events would, would have for the city. So it definitely, you know, it adds a lot of um, 
organizations staying in the city, a lot of parents, a lot of uh, friends, you know, how many, how many skaters come from, from your program to go stay there. So it's, um, you know, it definitely adds a lot of revenue into the different cities. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I think, uh, I think I'm all good from questions here, Dave. Uh, I think they've done a great job of answering them. Uh, anything else from your side? No, I think that was great. This was really interesting, and I hope, you know, I'm sure all of our fans are going to um, tune into the movie. So we will post links to how they can watch the film festival. And I guess any questions they have, they can send to us, and or they can, there's probably a contact form on your website as well, correct? There is, yeah. And we can also send you, we've got a lot of assets related to film festival day like still images and graphics and stuff so we can send those your way in case you want to include them in anything great and can you provide uh, the audience um the website again so the website for the documentary is lifeinsynchro.com the website for film festival day in order to watch the film this weekend or in the coming week is filmfestivalday.com is it com or org, Angela? Dot, dot com. Dot com. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> all right. So, all right. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Angela. Yeah, well, thank you very much for your time today, Angela and Nicole. And I think you guys have done a great job and, and really kind of are going to inspire some people with this movie. That was excellent. And now we have a Tech Talk by Aislinn on preventing rust on your blades. Aislinn is the owner of Home Ice. It's a full-service skate shop. Uh, located at the Skating Club of Boston, 1240 Soldiers Field Road uh, in Boston. Uh, Aislinn can be reached at her website, homeiceboston.com. And take it away, Aislinn. Hi, everyone. This is Aislinn Monk with Tech Talk. Um, And I thought for the time being, a a really relevant subject, uh, one that I've been getting a lot of questions about um, from customers, people reaching out you know, we're, we're off the ice for an unforeseeable future. We're, we're struggling. We, here in Massachusetts, at least we're two and a half months in and we're getting antsy. And uh, what can we do to make sure that our skates are staying in shape, our feet are staying in shape and uh, how to take care of our equipment so that when the rinks do open, uh, we're ready to go. Because the last thing you want is for all the ice rinks to open and you realize your blades are caked in rust and you can't even get on the ice until you get a sharpening. And we all know at this point, strolling into a store and getting a sharpening is not going to be a reality. It's You're going to need to be scheduling appointments in advance and, and uh, contact and everything will be limited. So just make it easier for yourself. Make sure your skates are staying in shape. And uh, so what I remind people to do, especially like here we live in a, a relatively humid climate, there's always humidity in the air. So even if you wiped your blades dry for the last time back eons ago, two months ago, and you put your soaker on and you think they're good to go, you would be surprised how quickly they can still rust if you're not you know, actively skating and wiping them down multiple times a week. So if you are one of those folks who put your skates in the trunk of the car or in a locker, a closet, and haven't really looked at them since, I urge you to check them out now and uh, don't be shocked if you see a little bit of spottiness on there. Um, hopefully you don't have, rust is, if you have a little bit of coloring on the blade, it's not gonna be so much an issue. Whereas if you gently run your finger over it, if you feel a texture, that's when you know the rust is, it, you can't skate on it. You gotta go get those things sharpened. So go check out your blades. If you do see a little bit of coloring, don't freak out. Even if you don't, I still want you to do this trick because WD-40 is like the miracle worker for blades. It is incredibly effective at preventing rust and also removing rust. So even if you pull out your blades and they look pretty darn good, I would still give them a wipe of WD-40 and then put your soaker back on. And if you do have a little bit of coloring on there, WD-40 and an old rag or a sponge and kind of work into it a little bit carefully obviously I don't want anybody cutting themselves and cutting through the rag into your hand but um, yeah that's just a really easy effective trick you can do now and uh, that will leave your blades good to go for when the rinks do open and 
Lord, we don't know when that is, but hopefully not too far from now. Excellent. So do different types of blades rust at a different rate? Mm, that's a great question. Yes. Um, so certain blades, that, that they vary in the metals they're made out of. Um, more traditional blades, and if I'm thinking about figure skaters, uh, like your Wilson and MK blades. Those are the very well-known makers. Um, they're made in Sheffield, England. Great quality steel but they tend to rust quite easily compared to say a matrix blade or Rydell makes some titanium and stainless steel blades. Um, stainless steel, titanium coated, those are gonna be less likely to rust as quickly. Um, so really popular blade out there is matrix um, stainless steel blade. And now I will warn people, I've had kids get these blades and think, great, I don't need to worry about rust at all. I can store my skates in my rubber hard guards and it's fine. It, they will still rust. You still need to make sure you wipe them dry and put your soakers on. But if you have matrix blades or a titanium coated blade, chances are, as long as you put the, the soakers on, they're, they're gonna be okay. But if you have a, a Wilson or an MK blade or even, uh, like a lower end blade that comes pre-mounted to your boots, I would I would really recommend checking it out. Um, with hockey blades, again, I'm my experience isn't in hockey, so I'm not as familiar with the brands, but I sharpen hockey skates, so I do see a variety of uh, quality in the steel. Some of them are really high quality stainless steel that they're going to have a better chance at holding up to rust, um, but some of the lower ends or, or different models they may not. So again, just quick, easy thing to do. Go check your blades, give them a wipe of WD-40 and uh, your blades will thank you. Actually, I kind of plan on doing that after we have this conversation. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> thank you I for you. reminding me of that. Now I have a, no. a little quick trick question is, uh, do you know what WD-40 stands for? What the WD stands for? No, I'm ashamed to admit I do not. It's all right. Most people don't. I, I, don't, actually I don't either. You don't know that either, Dave? Well, actually, either. it actually stands for water displacement. It was designed by the military to actually remove to, or to um, displace water on, on their uh, their equipment. So, and that's where WD-40 originally came from. So oh, there just thought you, you guys would like that little tip. Uh, that, that little, one little thing that I know. So, sorry about that. Now, so, what, ha what was WD-39? I have no idea. <laughs> I think it was the 39 trial that failed. So... And I think WD-40 was the actual trial that worked. Uh, now, one question I have for you, you'd mentioned, uh, like, there's, so there's multiple different types of uh, blades. What's the, the highest quality steel out there for, for a uh, figure skate blade? Or who manufactures the highest quality? Ooh, so that is, um, that's a difficult question because it comes down to opinion. So I always like to tell skaters there is no magic pill of a skater blade. There's no magic fix that is the the highest quality or the best. Um, so we can look at examples. There's going to be Olympians out there and you got skaters who can do quad jumps that are in a, a standard Wilson or MK, which is the more of, a, I don't like the word old school per se, because the company's done a good job of coming up with uh, new designs, but the metal they use is, is classic Sheffield England steel. Um, so it, is a little more susceptible to rust and it maybe needs to be sharpened a little more often than say your matrix blades. But I will say as somebody who would, I have way too many pairs of skates and blades I can justify, but I like to do it for product testing. So I have lots of boots and blades I, I skate in frequently. And um, I, it's hard to explain, but there's definitely a, like a, a softness to that blade where uh, I feel like your edges are, this is going to sound bizarre, but buttery. They're just smooth, and I feel like it's easier to kind of manipulate an edge in them. Um, spins and turns just have a little less friction and drag, whereas the Matrix blades, um, and again, you've got diehard Matrix fans out there, and I can understand because the, the mounting plates, the body of the blade is um, really high-grade aluminum, and then the actual runner, the skatable part of the blade is stainless steel. So those are... 30%, roughly 30% lighter to a traditional blade. 
Um, and so you obviously have the benefit of a lightweight. You, you don't want something heavy and clunky on your foot if you're trying to get up in the air and, and toss yourself around four times. Um, and then the, the stainless steel, obviously a little less likely to rust, um, holds an edge a little bit longer. So theoretically you don't have to sharpen quite as often. And I will say, I, I see my customers with matrix blades sharpening, um, let's say a traditional blade, you can go around 20 hours in without needing sharpening the matrix. You can push 30, maybe 35 hours if you don't weigh very much. So it, there's no black and white answer to who has the best quality. They have different features and uh, different skaters will value different features, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Um, I, I, I can understand that from a, uh, a hockey perspective. Like my son loves the Titan blades because um, he likes the quality of steel. He just feels like he can get an edge for, he, he can just hold his edge longer. So, and it holds a sharpening longer. So makes perfect sure. sense. Now, one question and me coming from the hockey side is, is there different profiles um, on figure skates? Yeah. Uh, are you talking about the blade and the, the rocker of the blade? Yes. Yes. I'm so, sorry. It may be called something else. Um, nope. The, profile uh, is probably the most accurate way to describe it, but I always okay. just double check before I launch into a, a, a rambling session about profiles. Um, so mm. before we go into that, um, just for listeners to understand, when we say the profile or rocker of a blade, Skate blades are not a flat line. Um, they have a curve to them. Actually, in, in figure skate blades, there's multiple curves and multiple rockers at different parts of it because if you are turning, spinning, even just doing a 180 to change directions, you have to, you need a pivot point. If you're trying to just take a flat blade and, and, and rotate, you're grinding it, you're not going to move very quickly. So the profiles will vary based on the model, um, not necessarily based on the level, um, but basically what you're looking at is the curve of that blade, and it, we call it the rocker, and we measure it in the radius in feet. So I always tell people, imagine you took that curve of your blade, and it, sometimes it's helpful to take your blade or your skate, set it on a hard surface, a flat surface like a table, rock it back and forth, and you're going to immediately see that and feel that, the curve. Now, if you were to, say, trace that curve on a piece of paper, you're going to need a lot of pieces of paper, let's say like 50, to, to fill that out into a circle. But let's say you follow that curve until it completes itself into a circle. We take the radius of that circle, and that's what we call the, the profile. So the, the most common ones really, I believe most of the, the rockers you're going to see on figure blades are seven foot or eight foot rockers. Um, okay. Does that make sense? Can you picture yeah. that? Yeah. Well, cause I know my son has 11s on his, his hockey skates. So it's, it's more of a flat surface. So that would make more sense, right? The sure. higher number the, the, the flat of the surface. Yep. Bingo. In essence. Okay. All right. Very interesting. Well, that will just about do it for, uh, episode 7 of Public Ice. As always, you can reach us at info at publicice.com. You can also reach Aislinn at Aislinn at homeiceboston.com. And you can find the team from the Life in Synchro movie at lifeinsynchro.com. Thank you, everybody, and see you on the ice. Mm-hmm.